Um, that Christmas is a time of fulfillment, but it is also a time of preparation. It's a, a time of getting ready for what is to shortly come. Uh, that when you look at a nativity scene, I know they're not up yet, but Emily and I sat down this week and we talked and we came to a not-so-hard decision that now is the time that after two years we need to put up outside Christmas decorations. We had not done it yet um, because Emily's really good at making art um, and, and hanging up on the wall, if y'all have seen it, but Christmas decorations involve getting out and hanging things, and I'm not the most coordinated person, but I like looking at them, and I said, you know what, we're excited about Christmas, we want them up, and she said, I agree. So we have gone through, as late as it is, the process of trying to find some Christmas decorations to put up outside the pastorium. And the one thing I was dead set on is I wanted a nativity set. I want a nativity set to sit in the front yard. And I wanted one of those little silhouette ones that, you know, you could point some lights at so that you can see it. Not the one with the big figurines. But whenever we look, we have this tendency at Christmas, and I say we, I know generally this, this can happen to me if I don't watch myself, that we, we look at the cradle and we don't look forward to the cross. That Christmas, the entire point of Christmas was, is getting to Easter. That if there's no Easter, Christmas is not an exciting time for us. That Jesus came and took on flesh because the one thing God could not do was die. That's the one thing God could not do. It took, it took humanity for Him to do that. That the entire purpose of the incarnation was that human body was capable of dying. That Christmas, the incarnation itself, was preparation for the cross. Christmas was preparation for Easter. John was preparation for Jesus. And we're going to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist today, how he prepared the way uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ and what his message was and how it was received and what it means for us because we don't think that much about John the Baptist, do we? Like we honestly, we don't talk. I mean, when's the last time you sat down and had an in-depth Bible study on John the Baptist? You don't. You sit down and, and we rightly go straight to Jesus. You should always go straight to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon's uh, tips for preaching a good sermon is pick a verse and get to the cross as quickly as possible. That's fine. I like that. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about somebody that in the first century, for a good 20 to 30 years, I mean, there, there was a, well, maybe not 20 to 30 years, but for a good chunk of time, even as far as about halfway through Acts, you find people who are disciples of John the Baptist who don't know about Jesus yet. That he was an extremely influential figure. That had tons and tons of followers that are all gone now because they got his message. They're all gone now because they got the message. I'm just here to prepare the way for one who's going to come after me. Who's saying, well, I'm not even worthy to lose. That Jesus was coming. That John prepared the way. But his message is still appropriate. His message is still valid. So if you'll go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. Now, Matthew is obviously not the, the only uh, book 
that uh, that that John is is in. Uh, so, oh, excuse, yeah, Matthew chapter three. It's, it's, this is not the only book that that John the Baptist is in. Uh, he's in all the synoptics um, and in John, uh, but. This is the one I have chosen because uh, you get a good amount of detail in this book that some of the other synoptic gospels don't necessarily share with you. So we're going to read verses 1 through 12 uh, this morning. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Father, I hope that, I pray, that you will give us soft hearts to hear the last of your Old Testament prophets speak this morning. Because the next prophet after him was your son. And he was more than a prophet. John prepared the way for him, and I pray that this morning we will all hear what John had to say and prepare the paths in our heart for Jesus as well. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I want us to look at John as a person today, and I want us to look at his message and and see what we can learn from it, which is a good bit. First, I want us to see that preparing for Jesus, which is what we should be doing right now leading up to Christmas, um, preparing for Jesus is preparing for Yahweh. Hopefully you've heard the name Yahweh before, even if you have not heard it all that often. Uh, You're going to see this in the text tonight. In fact, I'll go ahead and and point you to it. Look in verse 3 of of our text this morning, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. And you should have at least a portion of that verse that looks a little bit different than the rest of the verse. It's kind of set off almost like poetry. Do you see that? You do. Now look... At the second break where it says, prepare the way of the Lord. Do you notice something different about the word Lord as compared to the other words? What what does it look like? It's in all capitals. Now the reason that that is that way is that in the Old Testament, that's a quotation from Isaiah, okay? That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. It's Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, almost verbatim. And the reason that you've got Lord in all capitals like that is the translators of your English Bible are honoring a Jewish tradition in reading the Old Testament. 
If you remember the book of Isaiah, do you remember in chapter 6 when he sees the throne of the Most High God and he realizes where he is and what's going on and he says, Woe is me, I'm undone for I've seen, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord of hosts. And he panics because he's an unclean man in front of God. Well, saying that I'm a man of unclean lips, uh, that he's saying even the words that I say because they're coming from an unclean heart. They're coming from an unclean man. Even my lips are unclean when I speak. Well, there was this idea in ancient Judaism that even God's name, which if you look at it in Hebrew, they're the letters, uh, if you transliterate it out into English, it's Y-H-W-H. There are no vowels in ancient Hebrew. Um, rather than pronounce God's name, Yahweh, what they would do is they considered the name so holy that rather than say Yahweh and defile it by their unclean lips, they would say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. So when you get to the, the English Bible, rather than seeing the word Yahweh, when you see the word Lord in all capitals, that's your translator's way of letting you know that the Hebrew behind that word is the word Yahweh, but they're honoring the Jewish tradition of referring to God as Lord. And when you see all capitals, that's the word that's behind it. So Yahweh is the biblical name for God. That's the name that God gives as his proper name. When he reveals himself to Moses and Moses says, Who am I to tell, who am I to tell the Hebrews that you, that, that you sent me? What should I tell them your name is? And God says, Tell them I am sent you. Make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. God's the only being in the entire universe that's not dependent on anyone or anything else to be. He is. He was, He is, He will be. Yahweh in Hebrew means I am. So when you see Lord in all capitals, that is the great I am. So when you're preparing for Jesus, you're preparing for Yahweh. How do I know this? Chapter 3 verse 1 in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, of whom was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of Yahweh. The one coming to visit you. The one for whom you are preparing. The one that this voice in the wilderness crying out is preparing you to receive is no less than Yahweh Himself. He is coming to you. Make His paths straight. So we know from the get-go that John's ministry was to prepare the hearts of all who listened to him to receive Yahweh himself, that God was coming to visit. No one less than him. But let's talk about John for just a second. Uh, John, there are a lot of breadcrumbs that, 
Matthew kind of leaves, leaves you in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 here, letting you know that John is an Old Testament prophet. Now, when you look at your Bible, you've got the, the previous book is Malachi, right? You've got Malachi, and then you've probably got this. This one little page right here. In my Bible, all it says is the New Testament. That's it. There's nothing on the back of it. It's just this blank page. And this is a very deceptive page because it's the thickest page in your Bible. This one page contains 400 years of history. 400 years are on this page. Between the last of the prophets in the Old Testament and Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. There are around 400 years there. So we don't generally think of John as an Old Testament prophet. But that's what he is. Even though he's in the New Testament. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. How do I know this? Well, for one, he lives and preaches in the wilderness. Old Testament prophets did this. Where did Elijah stay most of the time? Out in the wilderness. If you remember, you know, where was he when he was hiding from Jezebel. Where was he when he says, God, they've killed all the other prophets and now I alone am left and they're seeking to kill me. Where's he at? He's in the wilderness. That's where Elijah stayed. That's where the majority of the, the old prophets stayed. They lived kind of apart from themselves. There is another Old Testament prophet quoted as prophesying his coming. That we're bringing other prophets into the mix. And that's Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. That he's wearing camel's hair clothing and a leather belt. Now this is not on your handout. Uh, but uh, I want to go back there and read it to you because it's interesting. If you go to 2 Kings. And you go to chapter 1. Verses 7 and 8. Well, actually, I'm going to start at verse 6. Uh, the king's got some servants. And he said, so, so they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he, the king, said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And he said, the king noticed just by what he was wearing, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Why in the world would Matthew tell you that he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt? Matthew, more so than just about any other author of one of the Synoptic Gospels, was aiming his gospel straight at the Jews. He's aiming his gospel at people who know the Old Testament. So when he says, camel's hair and leather belt, living in the, witness, living in the wilderness, other Old Testament prophets quoting from him, he's living off of locusts and wild honey, which by the way were clean under the Old Testament law. They maintained ritual purity. When you hear this, your mind immediately jumps to an Old Testament prophet, specifically Elijah. That that's who should be on your brain. 
That's who you should be thinking about. And eventually Jesus is even going to say, if you can hear it, John was Elijah who was to come. That he was the one who was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That John is an Old Testament prophet. Well, Josh, what in the world is that important for? Why do we care if he's an Old Testament prophet, whether he's in the Old or the New? Well, that's because we have a tendency to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. We put a lot of weight on that middle page between our Old Testament and our New Testament. And we tend to, we, if we don't look out, we can get into this habit. We can think that God behaves one way in the Old Testament and He behaves another way in the New Testament. That there's the Old Testament God who is angry and vengeful and wrathful and there's the New Testament God who's nice and gentle and loving. Now that's wrong. There's only one God But we see him differently between the Old Testament and the New Testament if we're not careful. John is an Old Testament prophet speaking to people at the time who did not recognize a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That God was just God. Yahweh is just Yahweh. And that's the way it ought to be. That God never changes. He never has changed. He never will change. Malachi 3.6, God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. That when John prepares the way for Jesus, John is preparing the way for Yahweh. The one true God of the Old Testament. He is preparing the way for us to receive on earth the very same God who rained fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. The very same God who split the sea for Moses and the Israelites to walk through on dry land. The very same God who sent manna in the wilderness to the Israelites wandering around for 40 years. The very same God who struck enemy militaries blind and with confusion so that they would destroy themselves and the children of Israel didn't even have to leave, raise a hand. The very same God who sent fire from heaven to consume the offering of Elijah. The very same God. That's who John was preparing the way for. So when you see Jesus, when you see one of those little nativity scenes like I wanted to to set up in my front yard, don't see little baby Jesus and think of him as anyone less than than that God. There was more in that manger than that manger could hold. That God doesn't change Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you look at Jesus and you listen to Jesus' teaching. Now, I haven't heard anyone at this church do this. But just because I've heard it, I haven't heard it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened in someone's heart or in someone's mind. That there are plenty of teachers that will teach a type of theology that says... God thought one way about sin in the Old Testament and He thinks another way about sin in the New. That certain things were wrong in the Old Testament, but they're not wrong in the New. That God was angry in the Old Testament, but He's loving and kind and merciful in the New. No, God doesn't change. If He felt 
a certain way about something in the Old Testament, I promise you, Jesus felt that way about it in the New. That if God had an opinion about something in the Old Testament, that opinion didn't change in the New. Likewise, if God has an opinion about something in the New Testament, I promise you, He had that same opinion in the Old Testament. Nothing ever changes with God. Matthew chapter 19, this is illustrative of this. This is starting in verse 3 through 5, and then I jump down to 8. These are all in your handout. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he, this is Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them when? At the beginning. Made them male and female. Is that italic in your Bible? Do you have that in italics? Or is it bolded? Or is there something under it that it sets it off in some sort of way? Made them male and female? And then, and then, and said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Is that in italics? Or bolded or set off or something like that? Do you know why that is that way? Because Jesus is quoting Genesis. And then the Pharisees come back at him, and I skipped these couple of verses because, I, frankly, I didn't want to run out of room on my handout. <laughs> That's the whole reason. There, there are verses in between. I encourage you to read them. The Pharisees say, well, if this is the case, then why did Moses command them, command a man to write his, his wife a certificate of divorce and put her out? And Jesus says in verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. That Jesus is saying, have you ever heard somebody say, man, why should we listen to the Bible? It's old. It's 2018. Why do we need to listen to a 2,000 plus year old book to tell us how to live our lives now? It's because God doesn't change. Well, society's different. People have changed. The world has changed. Who hasn't? God. God has not changed. And Even then, the Pharisees were playing that game with him. Well, hasn't the world changed? Jesus says, let me tell you how it was from the beginning. How does he know how it was from the beginning? Because he's Yahweh. He knows the intents of Yahweh's heart because he is Yahweh. He is that God. He is the word incarnate. So his opinion does not change. So please, 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 please. As we look through the rest of this passage today, and I know the first point was short, but it, and it's simple. But when John is preaching about the coming of the Lord, that's Jesus. And Jesus is the God of the Old Testament made flesh. Don't leave any of it out of Him. So first, preparing the way for Jesus is preparing the way for Yahweh. And second... Preparing for Jesus is preparing through repentance. Verses 7 through 9. Now listen to this. So John comes out there. He's been baptizing by the Jordan. And he's drawing pretty large crowds. Verse 5 actually says all Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. But then down in verse 7, John sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming. The New King James says to his baptism. 
Now, a quick note on Bible translations. Usually you can have, and that's not saying, this is not saying one is better or one is worse. This is just saying there are different philosophies behind different translations of the Bible. Generally, if you've got an NIV, this tends to be more idea for idea. It's not going to go as word for word over here. And then you go all the way probably to the far right side and you get the New American Standard, which is going to be word for word as much as it can help it, even if sometimes it makes reading it a little bit more difficult. In this particular case, it flips. The NIV is actually closest to literal here, and the New American Standard does a little bit extra interpretive work. The NIV says that the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to where he was baptizing. Not that they were coming for baptism, which is what the New American Standard says. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come out to see John the Baptist, and they come out to see all the hullabaloo because the Pharisees and Sadducees, even if they don't agree with each other, they do agree that they want the most influence in the religious world. And all of a sudden, you got this guy John show up in the wilderness who is drawing pretty much everybody to where he's preaching. Well, they would understandably be curious so they come out to the Jordan and they say, well, let's go out there and see what's going on. Well, John sees him coming. And John's not happy. He sees him coming and he says to them, brood of vipers. The word brood literally means offspring. He says, hey, snake babies, what are you doing out here? You children of snakes. Now find me somewhere in the Bible where a snake is a good thing. It's not there. Snakes are never good. The very first way Satan decides to show up is a snake. Have y'all ever found a snake at your house and said, oh, that's so cute? No, you don't like them. You don't. Snakes are bad. So he says, hey... You brood of vipers, you bunch of snake children. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? One of the commentaries I read this week says that you can almost feel the sarcasm dripping off that. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The sarcasm, because they don't think they have to flee from any wrath that's coming. They think if anybody's sitting pretty, they are. So we're going to come out here and we're just going to observe and see what this guy out in the wilderness is doing. And look at all these other people repent. Because we don't need to repent. These were the originators of the... Whoa, I wish so and so was there to hear that sermon. Because they would have benefited from it. Ever heard that before? Oh man, I wish so and so was there at church that day. Because they really needed to hear what preacher had to say. In general, it's a better idea to look inward. And say, oh my goodness, I needed to hear what, what God had to say that, that day. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come out hypocritically, not believing they need any repentance. And John's about to tell us why. He said that they don't share the crowd's need for repentance. And he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And then almost kind of reads them and says, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That 
These religious leaders were banking on their physical descendants from Abraham to be enough for God to accept them. That they were so concerned about external factors that they were not paying attention to their inward state. And see, we might not fall into the exact trap that the Pharisees and Sadducees fell into because I don't know that physically any of us in this room are descended from Abraham. That that's not going to trick us into thinking that we get all of Abraham's blessings because that we are his because we're his physical descendants. But we can fall generally into their same trap, and we can start coming up with other reasons why we don't need to repent. We're going to talk about some of those tonight. But specific external factors that might convince us that we have right standing to God when we don't. Sometimes our genealogy might convince us of this. That well, of course. I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know I'm a Christian? My mama's a Christian. My daddy's a Christian. My grandma's a Christian. My family's always been Christians. We go to church four times a year. You know, not that, you know, the, the other side of that's fake too. You could say, I go to church every Sunday. Of course I'm a Christian. You know, your church membership. You know, your church membership doesn't make you a Christian. That you can be on the membership roll at Stapleton Baptist. You can pick three or four denominations. You can be on a roll somewhere at a Methodist church. You can have one at a Baptist church. You can have one somewhere else. Because they don't send letters amongst the three. You can have three church memberships if you want to. And they're not going to save you. That you're, you're having your name on a sheet of paper in a church somewhere. That, that's not... An accurate reason to think you have right standing before God. Giving records. Giving records. So I've given a lot of money to the church. Of course that means I have a good relationship with God. Of course that means I'm a Christian. Well, no. That doesn't mean anything. In fact, if I know you're giving money to this church, fair warning, treasurers, counters, I'm just telling you, I would do this. If I knew somebody was giving money to the church to try and buy a clean conscience, I would refuse their check. I don't care if it was for $25,000. Because if I don't, what have I done? I've convinced them that you just handed the church a $25,000 check and you think you've bought $25,000 worth of salvation. Y'all, we don't have a favor with God catalog that I keep in the pulpit. That you can go down and say, I want about $3.50 worth of salvation. Can I give that today? And take that home with me? It doesn't work that way. Giving records. External factors. That, that they don't negate your need for repentance. Political or national affiliation. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I vote a particular way. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a citizen of this particular country. And by the way, that's been a problem for hundreds of years. For a long time in Europe, you know what the citizenship roles were? Baptismal roles in churches. That people considered themselves Christians because they were citizens. That there are a good number of people in different countries of the world that because we have said for so long America is a Christian nation, they assume that if you're an American, that makes you a Christian. There are a good number of Americans who believe that too. That if America is a Christian nation and I'm an American, then that must mean I'm a Christian. No. That doesn't mean that. 
What about self-righteous morality? So this is a dangerous one. You might think, well, Josh, I thought we were talking about external factors that convince people. Well, no, self-righteous morality is an external factor. How is that external? Self-righteous morality is when you look at someone else and judge yourself against them and assume as long as you're better than them, you're good enough for God. It's an outside judgment. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees did, by the way. They thought they were righteous, not because they were comparing themselves to God, which is what they should have been doing, but because they were comparing themselves to everyone else. And because they thought they were more righteous than everyone else, they necessarily believed that that meant, well, God will be happy with our level of righteousness because everyone else is trying to live up to us. All of these reasons combine to make the Pharisees and Sadducees think they did not need to repent. They had no need for repentance. And because they thought they had no need for repentance, they were woefully unprepared for the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's why the advice that John gives them is to bear fruit worthy of repentance. The word repentance in Greek is the word metanoia. Isn't that a fun word? It's the word metanoia. It means to turn around and go the other direction. It doesn't just mean say I'm sorry. It means actually live a different life, which you will only do if you really believe that the life you have been living is wrong. The Pharisees and Sadducees to repent would have had to admit that they were wrong. And they weren't willing to do that. Matthew chapter 23, 27, and 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear outward, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We've said it before in this church, and we will say it again as long as I'm the pastor here. This is not a building where a bunch of people who've got everything straightened out get together and talk about how good we are and how well we've got everything put together. Your pastor is a sinner. Our members are sinners. We are all tore up from the floor up, and there's no excuse for it. Don't try and make excuses. Don't. Because when we do that, what we do is we project this image to the people on the outside. I'm not good enough for them. I'm not good enough to go there. They don't want anything to do with me. Yes, we do. Because we're just a bunch of folks who've been saved by grace who want to get together and talk about how good God is, not how good we are. The beauty of repentance is that we have a God who offers us the ability to repent and be forgiven. God could just as easily not even extend that offer and just say, you screwed up, you're done. But He doesn't do that. And then for their argument, we're the children of Abraham. Jesus says in John 8, 39 and 40, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. I know the holidays are hard for a lot of folks because it almost seems like during, and when I say holidays, I'm not avoiding saying Christmas. I'm saying the period between Thanksgiving and New Year's. There are multiple holidays in, in there. 
Uh, statistically, that's one of the roughest times of the year for death and sickness. I think pro- studies have shown it's probably because that's the time of the year when folks think about family they've lost most often. And, and that's really hard on people physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Um, and, and so that makes me think when I read you know, verses like, like John 8, 39 and 40, you know, there's no such thing as an easy funeral. They don't exist. Because in any funeral, you're dealing with someone who's lost a loved one. But if there is such a thing as an easier funeral, it's when I sit down to meet with a family prior to That's what I always try and do that. I always try and sit down with the family prior to the service because I, I want, even if I knew the deceased, I want to get to know how the family knew them so that I can share that. And it makes it so much easier for me when the children show up and the children have a Christian testimony themselves because of the Christian testimony that their loved one left behind. Because I say, I can see your legacy. I can see their legacy living on through you. That Jesus told those scribes and Pharisees, if you were really Abraham's children, you would do the things Abraham did. That one day I'm going to know whether or not I was a good Christian leader, not first and foremost by how any church I've ever pastored has done. I'm going to know whether or not I was a good Christian leader because I'm going to see Margaret grow up. If I failed, then that... Time will tell the truth. These Pharisees and Sadducees, by their actions, showed you're not Abraham's children. So you say, well, my grandma was a Christian, so that means I am. Do you do the deeds of your grandmother? My mama was a Christian. My daddy was a Christian. Do you do the deeds of your mom and your daddy? Well, I want my children to come to church, but I'm not going to go. Well, they're going to be your children. They're going to do the deeds of mom and dad. Children do imitate their parents. So, Preparing for Jesus means preparing for Him through repentance. Don't come up with reasons you don't need to repent and why you're already okay and why you're already prepared. I promise you, ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, convict me. Help me to look more like you today. Point out sin in my life. Search me, God, and know my heart. Create a new heart within me. Take out this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Help me to repent. Show me the sin that I'm not aware of so that I can repent of it and be prepared. Preparing for Jesus is preparing through repentance. That, Like John says, we should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then finally, preparing for Jesus is preparing for judgment. John says in verse 10, 
Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit. What kind of fruit did John just tell you to bear? Fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That John is issuing, this is not a threat. I used to ask my mama, I got, I don't know, what maybe when I was little, this was a movie I had seen or something. My mama said, if you don't stop that right now, I'm going to whoop you. And she meant it too. And I looked at her, my little, my little tiny self bowed up and said, you threatening me? Is that a threat? And she leaned down and got real close to me and said, no, son, it's a promise. That's not a threat. Listen, why is John telling you that Yahweh is coming? Why is John telling you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Why is John telling you the axe is laid to the, fruit, to the root of the tree and any tree that doesn't bear fruit, what kind of fruit, fruit of repentance, is going to be chopped down and thrown in the fire? Why is he telling you that judgment is coming? Because judgment is coming. Josh, why can't you just preach more loving messages and don't preach hellfire and brimstone? Well, first off, I preach hellfire and brimstone when the Bible does. So that's, that's one thing. And then second, if I know that judgment is coming and I don't tell you about it, is that really loving? No, this is the most loving thing I can do is to warn you. That John said the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. That God's already lining up the blow. And if the tree doesn't bear fruit of repentance, it will be chopped down. That you are not, we are not stable. Do you know that you could get a diagnosis that will end you like that? Do you know that a drunk driver could know, come out of nowhere and hit you and end you like that? Do you know that you could have a stroke or a heart attack or an aneurysm and it could end you like that? I'm 29 years old. This all applies to me. I could have a heart attack right here behind this pulpit and fall over dead and not finish my sermon. That at any given moment, you could be standing before God and the book could be opened. Well, God, it's not time. Oh, no, it's always been this time. I wasn't ready. That's why I warned you. That's why I sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. That's why I sent my son. It says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Now, this is always interesting to me. When John says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire, is he looking at one giant group and saying he will baptize all of you with the Holy Spirit in fire? Or is he looking at two separate groups and saying he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and you with fire? I actually think it's the second one. And I'll tell you why. 
Now, I mean, you might say, well, wait a minute, what about Pentecost? That when the Holy Spirit came, there were tongues of fire. Yeah. But look at what the very next thing John says is. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That y'all listen. Jesus is going to baptize all of us. You will either be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which happens at the moment of your repentance. There is not a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit after your salvation that occurs when you give your life to Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells you. That is when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. You are either baptized with the Holy Spirit or one day you will be baptized by fire. That it will be one of the two. That Jesus is like the flood in Genesis. Either, it, either He will raise you to safety or He will crush you. He is like the cross. He is the cross. He will either save you or your rejection will condemn you. That you will be baptized either with the Holy Spirit or with fire. There is no neutral position that allows you to ignore Jesus. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, Do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. That John told us Christ was coming and the way in which we ought to prepare for him is we ought to prepare by repenting, knowing that the one who is coming to us is the one true God in whom who is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever, that he is so pure that sin cannot stand in his presence. Therefore, Stapleton Baptist Church, today is the day of your salvation. Repent. And if you're a Christian, you don't need to repent to be saved. You need to repent, live a life of repentance because you are saved. You already know that you sin, Right? You're not losing your salvation when you sin, but you're aware of it. And you know that it's not godly. And the Holy Spirit draws you back to God saying, you need to repent. Live like me. God, not your pastor. That now is your opportunity to repent. Now is your opportunity to come to God and say, I do need the pathways of my heart prepared for Jesus to walk among me. I do need to be prepared for that moment when I stand before the judge of all the earth. Sandy and Miss Joyce are about to come lead us in a couple of verses of an invitation here. And if you need to come, come on. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to shove a mic in your face. I just want to help you 
Come to know Jesus if that's what you need. If you need, to, if you need to pray at the altar, if you need to pray, I beg you, please do pray. Repent yourself. Pray for people that are lost that need to repent and know Jesus.